Please open your Bibles to the book of Acts, to chapter 4. Anybody have any of your computers on fire this morning or blow up? I know CNN was really worried about that all week, that your computer wouldn't know what time it was today, and systems were going to fail all over the world. So as far as I can tell, we're okay here, at least at Calvary. So we went in and manually changed some things. Whoa. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31, that's our text. Our topic, the disciples approach God as the absolute authority in the universe to request boldness as his servants. The title of our message, Despotly Seeking Servants. Verse 23, and being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus." And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for these words, some of them in the form of a prayer to you, all of them meaningful to us, Lord, as they are being brought to us to reveal Jesus in a more personal and powerful way than before we came into this place. Lord, we do desire to understand them in their context, but more even than that, Lord, we we wish to have them come alive in our hearing and speak to our personal contexts, to our lives and our circumstances, so that having been refreshed and encouraged by them, we can go out filled with your Spirit, do those things that Uh, are necessary to be your witnesses in the world, Lord, in those places that you've planted us. We want Jesus to be revealed in the word and through our lives. Do all those things, Lord, we pray, and more than we would ask or even think. We do pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Servant is the repeated word that jumps out at you when you are reading these verses. Jesus Christ is twice called your holy servant, Jesus. King David is called your servant David. The disciples called themselves your servants. Of all the designations and titles that they could have chosen for the Lord or for David or for themselves, they are focusing our attention on their desire to be known as servants. 
Now, there's another word in these verses that is not so obvious. In verse 24, they began their prayer by addressing God as Lord. It is not the usual word for Lord. It is the Greek word despotes. It is where we would get the word despot from. Now, we normally use the word desperate in a derogatory manner to describe a ruler with absolute authority and power. The first Christians used it for God as a term of endearment. Peter, John, and the rest of the believers were thrilled to be the servants of their despot. Because God's rule and authority were absolute, they could be certain he was in total control of their circumstances, even their recent persecution. It freed them to go on serving him in the power of the Holy Spirit. These first Christians thought like servants of a despot, and then they joyfully submitted to his will. I believe it to be one of the keys to their spiritual success. I serve God, so do you, or at least so do most of you. Serving, however, does not make us servants. We are serving but not servants when we think we are volunteers who serve at our own convenience. We are servants and not just serving when we go on submitting ourselves to the circumstances our benevolent despot has designed for us. Our text can help us determine if we are merely serving or if we are servants. I'll organize my thoughts around two questions. Number one, do you think like a servant? And number two, do you submit like a servant? First of all, in verses 23 through 28, do you think like a servant? Peter and John had been used by God to heal the lame man at the gate of the temple. The healing gathered a crowd to which Peter preached about Jesus. Many were saved. The religious authorities took Peter and John into custody overnight. It was the beginning of the official persecution of the church. Finding nothing they could charge them with, the religious authorities nevertheless warned Peter and John to quit preaching about Jesus. Would they quit? Of course not. But why not? What was it about them that made quitting impossible? One thing at least about them that made quitting impossible was that they thought like servants. They didn't think they had any alternative. It never dawned on them that they would quit speaking the word of God because it is what their master, their despot, had told them to do. And so we want to see some of the things that, some of the ways we can think like servants. And so first, they thought of themselves as being part of the Lord's church. In verse 23, and being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. The very first thing Peter and John did was go to a meeting of the church where they could give their testimony. The church was not just a voluntary gathering of people. It says they went to their own, and that's a strong phrasing. They belonged to one another. They were part of one another. They were connected with one another spiritually. Implied is that this was the Lord's church. He was the one building it on the earth. It existed for him to bring him glory. It was his idea to save these individuals and to bring them together into what he would call his body on the earth and to fill them with life. We should remind ourselves of these things from time to time because it's 
too easy to begin thinking of church as something that exists for me to meet my needs or to satisfy my desires. I have a real strong love for the church in general as an entity on the earth and for our church in particular as an expression of the, local, of the body of Christ locally. And I take offense to people who don't treat the church that way. Today, there is uh, in the church at large a movement, sometimes called the church growth movement or the seeker-sensitive movement. And though I understand some of their goals and desires, oftentimes the focus is on the people, not on the Lord. It is not my church. It is not your church. It is the Lord's church, and the focus must remain on the Lord Jesus Christ. The more I focus on myself or on you or on the people, uh, the farther I get away from the Lord. Those of you who have children or have raised children, you can know by experience that if you focus all of your attention in your household on your child and everything revolves around that child, his or her comfort, his or her demands, his or her needs, you're going to end up with what? A very spoiled child who pretty soon you won't be able to spank. <clears throat> it's coming even if this bill didn't pass. Uh, many countries in the world have already banned spanking. It's, it's uh, to me, one of the most serious things to come along in a long time, but that's an aside. You end up with a spoiled child. Uh, and this is what we are creating in the church, spoiled Christians. The church has to have a certain comfort, has to have a certain feel. Uh, many churches have, uh, you, you probably won't even believe this, but there are many churches that have several separate worship services at the same time to meet every possible worship need that people have. And so you can go to you know, behind door number one, there's hymns, and behind door number two, there's contemporary choruses. Behind door number three, there's early Maranatha music. Then there's some punk worship and some, you know, reggae and all that. And, and you can get whatever kind of worship you want. It's kind of a, a spiritual smorgasbord because we don't want to turn anybody away who might not like the particular expression of our worship. Well, who's the worship for? Is it for you? No, it's for the Lord. And, and so we, we really have to be cautious about these things. I want the church to meet my needs. And I admit that churches sometimes don't meet the needs of the people. But I have to take a step back and think, well, what, what are these really needs that I have? We get calls a lot. People calling and they say, do you have this? Do you have that ministry? Do you offer this? And I used to be more apologetic, and now I'm just matter-of-fact. I said, this is what we are doing. It, it, it's not more right than anybody else. There's nothing wrong with it. This is what the Lord has led us to do. Uh, and we'd love to have you come and experience that, uh, unless you're not going to like it, and then I'll suggest some other churches that you will like. And, and I'm very honest about that, very upfront, very straightforward, because we don't want any sad people who are looking for particular things that are not going to happen here. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, but all of us, we need to be, this is the Lord's doing. He is building his church for his glory, and we come into it. That's why when you go out into the community and you find your Christian friends who are not really connected to any local church, they're just part of the, you know, the overall body of Christ, that is just wrong. 
Peter and John, they didn't just go out and say, hey, what do you think we should do? You know, do you want to get a falafel? Do you want to, you know, have a breakfast burrito? What, what it, no, they went to the church. They, there was that, that organism, that family of believers that they reported to. They found it necessary to give them a report, to encourage them and strengthen them. And the church was finding it necessary to be there to hear that. We wonder sometimes why the church, why Christians don't accomplish more. It's because we have lost a sense of connectedness to the local church. And so it exists for the Lord. And so as we enter into this uh, idea of, of thinking like a servant, what is our thinking about the church? You're not thinking like a servant unless you are vitally involved in the life of some local church. Now next, and the major part of what we're going to talk about, they thought of God as their despot. Verse 24, so when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. They had just been incarcerated, they'd just been interrogated, and they were severely threatened the first word out of their mouths was despotes. Despite their trouble and persecution, they acknowledged that God had absolute authority. In other words, though the authorities had taken them into custody, warned and threatened them, they still addressed God as the ultimate authority. Nothing had changed in their way of thinking. They knew that nothing could happen to them that caught God off guard. And then they immediately referred to what we would call special creation, God's creation of the universe. It was God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. He has therefore not abandoned his creation. He is working within it to accomplish his eternal purposes. Trouble and persecution seem strange to us. Some have even come to the conclusion that God cannot be the absolute authority over his creation if his people can suffer. If God has the absolute authority of a despot over his creation, then why not deliver us from trouble? It's because he sometimes chooses to deliver us through our trouble. It is nothing for God to deliver you from trouble. Whether it's uh, any kind of trouble you can imagine, God could easily deliver you from it. It is through your trouble that you experience the greatest grace and growth. And God, who sees the big picture in your life, is looking ahead while we are so often just looking around. I always want God to deliver me from my trouble. I, I, trouble is not my middle name, if you know what I mean. I mean, I just, I don't like trouble. I want my life to just be even, even, even. Trouble is a blip that I can do without. God, though I know, could easily deliver me from it, but instead he says, Gene, this is something you have to go through or you're never going to know my sustaining grace and you're never going to grow. And so uh, this is why these things happen. You're not thinking like a servant unless you acknowledge God is your benevolent despot in those situations. Now, the next four verses give additional depth to the idea that God is a despot with authority despite your troubling circumstances. Verse 25, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? 
The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Now, this is taken from Psalm 2. Peter is quoting, or the disciples here are quoting a prophecy of how the promised Messiah would be resisted by the earthly authorities. And they applied it to the recent rejection of Jesus Christ in his first coming when they said in verse 27, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. Herod and Pontius Pilate represent earthly civil authority. Gentiles are all non-Jews. They were against Jesus, as were the people of Israel. And so what they're saying here is that all the people of the earth and all the earthly authorities were against Jesus. God is the despot with absolute authority. Jesus was his holy servant, anointed in his first coming. How could Jesus be rejected then by mere earthly authorities? Well, verse 28 answers the question. He says it was to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Jesus' rejection was within the purpose determined before by God. While the Lord was being crucified, God was in control, exercising absolute authority over his creation. The technical or the theological word, I should say, for God's control over creation is sovereignty. One definition of God's sovereignty reads, and I quote, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass. Since God is before all things, created all things, upholds all things, is above all things, and owns all things, he is the rightful ruler of all things. Since God is all-powerful, all-good, all-knowing, and all-wise, he both knows the best thing to do and he has the power to do it. That is God's sovereignty. Now, the companion doctrine to God's sovereignty is God's providence. Providence comes from the Latin pro and video, meaning foresight. A good definition of providence is, and I quote, the continuous agency of God by which he makes all the events of the physical and moral universe fulfill the original design with which he created it. And so God is sovereign. He rules over all things, and through his providence, he makes all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. God's sovereignty and providence should never be thought of as fatalism. Fatalism meaning everything is set and there is no human freedom. That's not what the Bible teaches. You might conclude that from reading certain verses talking about a certain aspect of God's sovereignty, but it's not what the Bible teaches. But neither does providence deny what we would call certainty, as if God could ever be surprised by your freely chosen actions, as if you, uh, you know, could change things that God says are definitely going to happen. And, and these are two odd conclusions that people come to who study these doctrines, that there's no free will, everything is set, uh, you know, God is absolutely sovereign. Or there's an extreme position that you can actually throw God a curve and he's not a good curveball hitter. And you can change the future and he has to, you know, kind of uh, go back into a, a, uh, 
a meeting with the angels to figure out what's really going on. That's not what the Bible teaches either. When we mention sovereignty and providence, we have entered the realm of systematic theology. Brilliant and scholarly men wrestle with concepts and the scriptures to try to argue in a way that explains exactly how God's sovereignty and providence work in terms of freedom and responsibility and accountability and those things. What I have come to understand is that we will never understand some of those things. Now, if you've been in my office, you know I really like books, and I especially like books on systematic theology. I don't know why I'm just crazy that way. I just got a set by Norman Geisler that's wider than my podium. Uh, you know, there's so many pages. People come into the office and say, oh, Pastor Gene, have you read all these books? And I want to lie to you and say yes, but I just collect books. I've read a lot of books, but not all of them, of course. And so I really, I enjoy systematic theology. And maybe it's because I enjoy it and I've read a lot of it that I realize that what happens is you read the Bible and you see what the Bible says, and then you go over here and you say, now how can that be true? And how does that work out? How can God be sovereign? How can I have free will? And you come to a conclusion that is not necessarily biblical. It helps you, maybe, or maybe it hinders you. If you come to the conclusion that you don't have any free will, it hinders you. If you come to the conclusion that God is not in control of everything, it hinders you. And so while it's fun to talk about these things and argue for particular positions, what the Bible says is that God is sovereign and he exercises providence and we are not to argue about it, we're to assume it. In other words, the Bible teaches these things, doesn't explain it to our satisfaction, Peter, John, and the first Christians assumed and accepted these truths, and that's the point. The circumstances of your life are no less within God's sovereignty. These guys had been incarcerated and interrogated and threatened, persecuted for the healing of this lame man and preaching the gospel, and the first words out of their mouth were, God, you are the sovereign controller of the universe. You're the despot. We're your servants, and we want to go on doing what you've called us to do as your servants, period. It didn't throw them for a loop. They just were right on target with it. They didn't have a theological debate. How is that possible, guys? And they proved from Scripture that even Jesus Christ was subject to that. Even as the Messiah, God had before ordained that he would first suffer and then reign. The circumstances of your life are no less within God's sovereignty. God knows you are being persecuted at work or at school. He could easily deliver you from it. If he does not deliver you from it, then he intends to deliver you through it with grace for growth. Your part is simply to think like a servant in your circumstances. Let me use an example closer to home. Maybe you're struggling in your marriage. Quite frankly, you want out of your marriage but you do not have biblical grounds of physical adultery. Your part then is to think like a servant. God intends to give you grace to go through your marriage. God is the despotes, you are the servant. Based on that appraisal, the first Christians did not ask to be delivered from trouble. They did not ask for their enemies to be overcome. They asked only for the enabling to continue as servants in the very circumstances that had caused them trouble to begin with. This is a mature understanding of our relationship 
with God who always only wants what is ultimately good and best for us, though we don't see it at the time. Which brings us to our second question. Number two, do you submit like a servant? Verses 29 through 31. Their prayer actually catches you off guard. Verse 29, now look, Lord, on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. They knew it was God's will for them to speak the word. Knowing God's will, there was only one way to pray. They wanted boldness to continue doing the very thing that had gotten them into trouble. God's word reveals his will in most of the circumstances we find ourselves in. I mean, there are a lot of decisions, you know, where we pray and, you know, Lord, which school do you want me to go to or uh, which job do you want me to take? And, And there's a lot of those kinds of decisions. But really, if you step back, a lot of the major decisions of your life, a lot of the major relationships of your life, God has spoken to. You may not know the exact person that you're supposed to marry, but once you fall in love and get married, you know everything there is to know about marriage and how it is to glorify God and honor God and the sacredness of it and the sanctity of it. You know how to raise a family. You may not know exactly which job you're supposed to take, but once you're working, you know exactly how you're supposed to act at that job. And and you can go all through the list of everything that we do in our daily lives, and God has spoken to those things. Peter would go on in his epistle to say, everything that pertains to life and godliness is in the word of God. Once you know God's will, there's only one way to pray. We can waste a lot of breath praying for things that are outside of God's will for us. We are certainly not submitting like servants when we want to be out of God's will. It's hard because it's not that you can never change jobs, for example. Uh, You know, not everybody stays in the same job, and maybe God is moving you to a different job. But if our first thought is, I'm having trouble at work, I need another job, or my boss needs to die. That's not exactly what God has in mind for you. If you were one of these first Christians, your first thought would be, Lord, give me boldness to continue to speak your word despite the troublesome circumstances I find myself in. They didn't pray about, you know, Lord, send us to Ethiopia, where I hear that it's a little bit, you know, more politically correct to talk about Jesus. They didn't pray about the religious authorities. They said, Lord, we know what your will is. You've told us to speak the word. Now there's persecution. That's within your sovereignty. Give us the grace to continue to do what we know your will is. And, and so that's the, the situation that we find ourselves in. Again, I'd use marriage as an example. Most divorces among Christian couples do not have biblical grounds of physical adultery. Couples divorce despite the revealed will of God that they should not. They're not, therefore, submitting like servants. Is it any wonder that they do not receive the grace they need to remain in their marriage when they've already determined that they do not need to submit to God? You know, God knows the heart. His word divides between the soul and the spirit, we're told in Hebrews chapter 4. God knows if someone is going to submit to his word. And if you've already decided, I'm not going to submit to marriage the way that the Bible describes it, then God's not, there's no filling for you 
to stay in that marriage. A lot of times people want to deal with God. And the deal always is, God, if you make my spouse perfect, then I will stay in this marriage. And God says, you stay in this marriage and I will give you the grace and the strength to endure. And what it comes down to is, quite honestly, and, and, and it's very true, I don't want to endure what is difficult. And there may not be anything worse than a bad marriage. I mean, it's like hell on earth. And people just, they get to the point where they look at themselves and they say, I am not going to endure this anymore. Not getting any younger. I'll never find anybody else. I don't deserve this. There's a million different things that we say to ourselves, convincing ourselves that though there are no biblical grounds, I'm getting out. And, and as long as you're doing that, you're not really praying the way these first Christians prayed. You're not really a servant. They would never have prayed that. They would have said, Lord, give me the grace to be the husband to my wife that you would be. Give me the grace to see past my husband as unto you. And, and God is faithful to do those things. The first Christians submitted like servants and they expected miracles. Look at this in verse 30. By stretching out your hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. If they had quit speaking God's word, then God would have had no opportunity to heal others or to do signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. We can become so selfish about getting out of our circumstances that we miss the opportunity to glorify God within and through our circumstances. God can literally do miracles if we will submit to him. Now, when we think miracle, nothing wrong with thinking of a lame man born lame, over 40 years old, carried every day to the gate beautiful outside the temple. One day Peter reaches out, says in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. All of his bones and muscles and everything comes together. And not only is he perfectly healed, but he knows how to walk and leap and he's dancing with the stars. I mean, he's into it. And that's a miracle. I mean, that's powerful stuff. But I'll tell you some of the greatest miracles, and I, I, they are miracles. Some of the greatest miracles are God's healing of relationships, God's healing of marriages. When I first came to Christ, God's healing of my marriage was nothing short of a miracle. It, it was profound. And God can do signs and wonders and those kinds of things if we will submit to him as his servants in some of these circumstances. And they are profound as people look at us and think, how can you, how could anyone be in this situation and trust the Lord and have joy? I don't understand that. I want that. You know, there are stories... In Fox's Book of Martyrs and in Christian history, church history, as martyrs were being taken to, uh, you know, be burned at the stake or crucified upside down, oftentimes their captors, their guards, would lay down their weapons and become Christians and join them and be martyred on the spot because there was something so powerful 
about their joy and submission in those circumstances. Now, I know some of you think your marriage is like a martyrdom. When Jesus said, you know, he wanted you to bear your cross every day, he wasn't talking about your spouse. And again, I, I've, I've sat with too many people who are burned out on their marriage and, and whose marriage is miserable. And other circumstances at work and at school and neighborhoods and all. God can do miracles in those places. You can become his sign. You can be a wonder to the extent that you'll submit. Uh, in verse 31, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they also spoke the word of God with boldness. I submit that God was excited about this perspective in them. And he shook the place as an outward display of his excitement. Whether or not we experience God quakes, it's precious to think that our prayers can excite God. They will when they have the perspective that we are his servants submitted to his will. God could not help but fill them with the Holy Spirit because they were willing to do what he wanted. If we are not experiencing the filling of the Holy Spirit, perhaps it's because we are not yet willing to do what God wants. God doesn't, and I hope you'll understand this, he doesn't waste his grace. It's super abundant. We can have all that we want or need, but he's not going to waste it. The filling of his spirit, we need to be willing and submitted servants first. It's not that we earn it. Being willing to submit to God isn't something that only super spiritual, pious people, there's nothing that we earn. It's a perspective. It's an understanding. It's, a, it's the reality check that, oh, wait a minute, God is a despot. He's a wonderful, benevolent, all-loving, all-caring despot who makes all things work together for good to them that love him. I am his servant. I'm going to do anything and everything he tells me to do. That kind of willingness brings the filling of the Holy Spirit into your life. If I'm not willing, I'm not going to get that filling because I'm not going to do it. I won't need the power to obey God because I've already determined to disobey Him. And so God is looking for those who are yielded and those who are willing. God could not help but fill these disciples with the Spirit and he cannot help but fill us as well. And so it's up to you. You can serve at your own convenience, or you can think like a servant and submit to God. If you serve at your own convenience, you will avoid some troublesome circumstances. I'm not saying your life will be better. I've seen people go from marriage to marriage to marriage. It's not necessarily, you know, that your next marriage is going to be any better, or your next job. Or your ne God has a way of overruling and bringing you back to a place where you're going to obey him. Think Jonah. <laughs> I love Jonah. That guy was hardcore. Jonah is hardcore. I am not going to preach to Nineveh. God said, go to Nineveh. He got on a boat going the other way to Joppa. God brought a storm. Jonah said, throw me overboard. Now, I can't say for sure, but I'm thinking he's committing suicide. You know, it's suicide by sailor, we would call it. 
you know, he doesn't have the courage to kill himself. He says, so, hey, here I am. The lot fell on me. I knew it would. I'm running from God. You're going to have to throw me overboard. And so they do. And that, I'm thinking, if you're Jonah and you're in the sea and the sea gets calm, but you're out there, there's no rescue copters coming. I mean, you're just, you're going to go down. Finally content, all of a sudden, oh, man, he's (laughs) swallowed by a giant fish. And he finds himself alive inside with Pinocchio. (laughs) Boat goes on to Joppa, fish goes on to Nineveh, barfs him up on the beach. Now there's no place to go, nothing to do. I mean, people are seeing him. He's this all bleached out Jewish prophet, you know, covered with seaweed and slime. Walks to Nineveh and says, God's going to destroy you in 40 days. And then he goes outside the city and he sits in depression. He was like the poster boy for Prozac. <laughs> he's, I mean, he's the most bummed out guy in the world. And God, you know, God says, hey, you, you know, we're going to get this done. If you belong to me, we're going to get this done. How much easier would it have been for Jonah to just go to Nineveh and preach the gospel? And that's what's going to happen in all of our lives. And so we might as well submit. We might as well cooperate. God is a benevolent, all-loving, all-caring despot notwithstanding the terrible troubles that you might end up with in your life, the diseases, the hurts, the pains, the sufferings, they are all within His predetermined counsel in His grace to bring growth. We are His servants. You might experience a God quake or two along the way as He is excited by your prayers you'll certainly bring miracles and signs and wonders in the circumstances you find yourselves in, whether it's a marriage, a home, a job, a school, a neighborhood. Let's just be these simple Christians that God wants us to be. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for these things. They're endearing to us. I hope, Lord, that we would understand this word despot or despotes in a new way, Spoken of any man, it is a terrible concept, Lord. No one should have absolute power or authority over other men. But out of that context and in the context of the creator of the universe, the God who's revealed himself through Jesus Christ, the God who was willing to become a man and die for the sins of the world and rise from the dead, in that context, Lord, we claim you as our despot the one who is in control of all things and makes all things work together for the good. Give us a reality check, an attitude check, Lord. We want to be those who think like servants and who then submit as servants. We want to go through our troubles, Lord, with grace for growth. And we want, not for our sake, but for your sake and the sake of others who are watching, and who don't know Christ, we want to see miracles, signs, and wonders done through that submission. The Word of God being spoken through our lives and by our voices. You are so good to us, Lord. You've not asked us to do anything really difficult. 
except to yield to you and let you do the rest in the power of your spirit. We surrender all to you, Lord. You deserve it. Fill us, use us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand together. Some of the guys will be down here to pray with you. If there's something on your heart, something that's troubling you, maybe you have a need of some kind, you have a Bible question, God just tugging at you, come forward and, and allow these guys to pray with you and for you. We will next be together uh, Wednesday morning. The men meet at uh, 6.30 for a devotion. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount. Wednesday night Bible study from 7 to 8.15. We're in the book of 2 Kings. Uh, fellowship before and after, good time. I kind of hoping that the Lord would just come, you know, right now. But I'll, Wednesday's as far ahead as I want to look, really. So I love you. I love this church. God loves you. He loves our church, and He loves the church. Uh, and uh, we're all connected one to another in a spiritual way that is really incredible. And it, it's a joy, really, to be a part of a church that understands that, that is filled with people who at least desire to be servants of a despotic God. And so let's just make whatever slight or not so slight adjustments that are necessary so that we can see him do even greater things than he's done already in our personal lives and in the lives of others. Those of you who have been healed of many things, both physical and emotional, return to that understanding that that's what God wants to do all the time in your life and in the lives of others through you. He still works miracles. Things that are lame are still being made whole. Easy to heal a lame man, hard to heal a lame man and woman who are at odds with one another or to bring a family back together. But God can do it. He's done it for you. He'll do it again for you. He'll keep doing it until His Son, Jesus Christ, is sent to take us home. God bless you and keep you. Amen.